Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today's interview has been in the works for quite some time, and I'm really excited to finally be bringing it to you. This interview is with Craig Fickle, and it's special because Craig is the main individual who actually got me started on this podcast, because he encouraged me, he, uh, he helped me brainstorm some ideas, and um, really, he's one of the main ones who helped me to name this podcast as well. So Craig is very well-read when it comes to nonviolence, and he's much more knowledgeable than me on, on the early church. And that's why I wanted to have him on to discuss the early church a bit. I'm trying to talk Craig into doing his own season at some point, uh, because if you notice in, in a lot of my episodes, I'll use we or our um, for the fourth way, when really it's, it's me that's, that's kind of done everything so far for the most part. So, uh, I, but I use the we and us language because I'm holding out hope that Craig will um, eventually be able to find the time to, uh, to, add some, to uh, add some seasons and such. So there's a lot, of, uh, a lot for you to get out of this episode in regard to the early church, but I think the thing that I'd, I'd most encourage you to uh, see and to focus on as we're going through our discussion is that truth ends up being a lot more complex than any one side usually wants to convey. Um, each side usually wants to control the truth. You know, we've got fake news, and um, on the other side, of course, there are deniers, right? They accuse people of scientific denial, and the other side inc- uh, accuses people of fake news. Um, every side wants to control the narrative, wants to control what truth is. Uh, that's what we see in the Garden of Eden with Satan, right? Satan wants to control what truth is. Did God really say, like, does, does he really mean you're going to die? Like, is, is that really true? He just doesn't want you to become like him. So whenever you see truth simplified, a lot of times that's going to mean that um, somebody's trying to control you whether that's conscious or subconscious. So what you'll see in this interview is that we talk a lot about how truth is a lot murkier. I would love if it were true that Constantine came in and took this pristine, beautiful church and he corrupted it all by himself and uh, turned turned uh, Jesus' teachings on their head. But it, it doesn't quite work that way when you, when you look at uh, history. It's not quite so simplistic. So, like I said, when we make a narrative lopsided, it's, it's really easy to do to try to manipulate others. And it's also easy to do in order to villainize one side as being abnormally evil. And when we do that, we miss out on a lot of the lessons that we can learn about our own times and our own communities and our own selves. Because when we villainize somebody so much that we couldn't be them or the people we know couldn't be them, then we're not looking for the same pitfalls that um, drew those individuals or groups into the problems that um, they ended up having. So hopefully this discussion takes an honest and nuanced look at the early church, um, and hopefully that provides a lot of value here to this discussion, especially in the polarized West. So here it is, the interview with Craig Fickle. Well, I thank you for um, kind of for being willing to uh, to go down this route. I mean, I know you're interested in it anyway, but um, it, it's very helpful that you were able to kind of 
read some of that stuff and and do that thinking and then i could just ask you questions <laughs> yeah well because we've talked before and i've wanted to, to do stuff and so this was a good push because i knew a bit about it but not enough so it was good for me to, to dive into it and read some of the sources and stuff and so it's been good for me as well so i'm glad we can do this okay well cool well then um why don't you just introduce yourself and then we'll get started yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm Craig. Um, I am American. Like we said, uh, I'm living in Singapore right now because um, my wife's Singaporean, so we're just living here. Um, I, you know, I've been a Christian my whole life. Grew up in technically a four square, but really non-denominational, uh, which I actually kind of liked because we didn't talk about any of the denominations at all, which kind of sucked later on. But it was good because I didn't have any um, bias either way, really except just the inbuilt ones of where I just thought my beliefs were the natural beliefs of every Christian. Uh, but I, I wasn't scared of anything. So, oh, little after college, as it happens, right, you start to explore more and you start to dig more into all these different um, thinkings and you find out Christianity is a lot less monolithic than, than you once thought, um, which only explodes once you go into early church reading, of course. Um, and I, you know, I don't think for me, I remember you and I have talked and it's, it was a, we have a similar timeline at about the time that we started to become convinced of, uh, the, uh, the Christian necessity of nonviolence, oh, 2016, 2017, somewhere around there. And, uh, I don't know exactly where I came from it. I don't remember like a certain big moment, but the first time I really started to, to read into Christianity beyond just my church um, was uh, like the Catholic saints and stuff. And so when you read them, they're all monks who do, they are pacifists, right? They, they, they live this very cut off life where they're supposed to uh, literally follow the sermon on the mountain, blah, blah, blah. They just don't expect anybody else to. But they're also writing to other monks generally. So, uh, but I come from this 21st century egalitarian, where all the, you know, like there's no different levels of, whatever we're all you know in protestantism we're all um equally um they were writing to me as far as i was concerned and so i have a feeling that influenced my ideas of lot because they they got to talk about these things about grace and forgiveness without you know the caveat like except you know of course in these situations because they weren't allowed to and i have a feeling that that influenced me um and so it's only been you know, five or six years now, probably. But since then, I've I've uh, dove quite deeply into it, and um, yeah, and so that and so that's why I hear it, and that's how you and I met. Actually, was I was looking into stuff, and I found your website, and then I made the Discord, and then so we started. To, I invited you there, so we talked there, and so um, yeah, yeah, and so uh, one of the first things I did, which kind of brings us to this, is I would see people on Reddit post things about uh like the early church fathers about nonviolence, but it's on reddit and they would just post quotes which later quite a after i did this i found your website you did this but you you i think you posted like the like the fuller quote and where it came from and stuff but i couldn't find that anyway they would just say origin said this and you're like but did he like you know like i i'm not gonna totally bank on this by then i was already pretty convinced of, of christian pacifism but you know I wasn't going to go around parading that. So I got a few books and started reading that. And then I decided to um, make a, a, a little um, blog just write 
it's really nothing unique. I basically just put that on there so that people could find it rather than just scoffing at it. Or if they were looking like me, I wish somebody else had it, I guess, which I guess you did, but now we have two out there. And, um, and that kind of, that was my first, so I would like read a quote from them from what the one that Cider has, uh, Ron Cider has one. I think it's just the th- early church on killing or yeah, something I think, like yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Something very basic like that. That was one of the ones I got. And he does good and gives a little context and stuff, but he just kind of has the quote. So then I would go back and like read that whole section, or if it was a small enough for read the whole work. And one thing that you'll notice when you read those things is that the the early church fathers, at least the ones that we get writings and stuff from, are typically pretty intense. If you've read any of them, it's a little jarring maybe for some of our modern ears, especially in this kind of ecumenical uh, climate. Um, But they were pretty harsh, you know, um, at at times and pretty intense. But once you sort of get used to that and you just get used to different culture and different time and different situations and stuff, there's a a lot of good stuff in there. And and I really, um, I've enjoyed kind of slowly going through them. But most of my reading has been this interest in this, what we'll talk about this today, this this um, this seeming change. Well, it's not a seeming change. There's undoubtedly a change around the time of Constantine. Um, there's no real discussion on that. It's just how much, what exactly changed, and whether it was good or bad. Uh, yeah. But once Constantine became, um, well, Christian not, once he um, favored Christianity, um, it's inevitable that there'll be some sort of changes. Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. And I also want to add that um, in all of this, while we were going through this together, um, I think it was it was you, or at least you were influential in um, uh, suggesting the name for the fourth way. So I, I, I was somebody I remember, though, it was, I think somebody said third way and um, they suggested fourth way. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I remember like, but third way is so common. But they. Um, they said, yeah, but then there's also the freeze. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's so true because we can talk about it all the time. But then there's the following through aspect and stuff. I thought it was really, yeah. So yeah. it was not me though, but yeah. Okay. It was part of the conversation. Well, it was your Discord group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things that you said, and we we won't be able to get to, to talk about this, um, but you know, talking about the monks, uh, it was it's so fascinating to me that yeah like you get Aquinas and all these just war theory people who even though they're for killing they're like well yeah but priests can't do it <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's uh it's amazing when you start looking back through history which um I guess I would I would ask before we really dig in like who cares what happened two thousand years ago in regard to church history. You know, I'm a Protestant. I've got my Bible right here. I just go to the source, like what Jesus said. Um, why do I care what the early church said, especially when, even if I can pull out some good nuggets, uh, like you said, they're pretty harsh. And they, they say some things that we would deem crazy about, uh, you know, they had weird ideas about sex and you should only have sex to procreate. And there's a lot of abstention in marriage. And like, there's some weird things that they did. Why do I care about what the early church did? Um, I, I maybe think in a two different aspects. One, and um, I think I first heard it from John Bear. He's an Orthodox priest, I believe, and he talks about all you know all the different 
the okay. Sometimes I don't think it's fair when Catholic and Orthodox will say that uh, if you're rejecting the early church, you're rejecting the people who wrote the Bible or whatever. Because it's like, well, no, they didn't write the Bible. However, the people who deemed that this out of all the other writings were good, the people who fought against other people who tried to get rid of that. You know, like you said, the Protestant with your Bible. Well, other people didn't want those certain books in, or you know, whatever. And things like such as the Trinity. And you say I can find it in the Bible, but it's not necessarily super apparent. So it's like this process of finding these things. Now, when I I read through the early Church Fathers, I I disagree with them all over the place. I'm still firmly Protestant, but but it's almost like rejecting the means and how we got it. It's like, thank you for all that. And I'm just going to completely ignore any of the process or how we got there. We don't have to follow them everywhere and stuff, but I think we should be respectful, not just as a polite respectful, but I mean, whether we know it, we're influenced by them, I guess is what I'm saying. So it's, um, it's good to see where we're influenced, how we're influenced. You know, there are certainly beliefs that we have that, uh, there are probably beliefs that we have, even if we think we're super sola scriptura, that are largely because of them that we don't even that we don't even realize. Um, and so it's good to read. And even if you don't change any of your views or whatever, they can help you solidify some of those views. And you know, sometimes you might look at things and go, oh, maybe they know something too. This, okay, and here's one more thing before I get to the second point. Whenever I will talk about the early church. So like when I, for example, on Reddit, when I finished my little series on the early um, church on, on violence and I submitted it, um, you know, different comments, several of the comments. Well, what do I care about? The early, they're not fallible. They're not infallible. Blah, blah, blah. And there's just this immediate rejection. If I would have said like C.S. Lewis's view on violence, like, oh, I want to hear that. But for some reason, they think that if I talk about some guy that was 200 years after Christ, I'm like worshiping him as the same. It's like, right, but he's a Christian too. You listen to other Christians. Can't we also listen to them? Uh, and I think in some ways we have a better perspective of them. We have more time to have thought about it. We have, um, as far away as we are, we get all these different, um, it's the age of information, right? And we have all these different pieces and threads and stuff that they, would have been harder for them. Um. But also, they were closer, they were in a, a culture closer to it, and they had that stuff too. So it's also smart for us to go back and listen to that. Um, oh, I got distracted. So I, I would say that's, that's part of it. Oh, and the other thing is, and some things that I think we'll talk about some, is some of the things that I've seen. So if someone were to ask that who is convinced of nonviolence, for example, or just doesn't like some of the things that's happened in church history, uh, I've seen some of those those roots. It's not just like we had this nice, quiet, you know, Amish, everybody was quiet and humble church, and then Constantine uh, converted, and then we're like committing crusades and stuff, right? There's stuff that started before, it, it went after, these, these little strains came. And some of the things I do think um, perhaps were, were uh, more or less inevitable to turn into what it did, but a lot of the things I think were fairly innocent. Um, there was a strong strain of pacifism throughout the church. Um, we don't have any writing from any Christian that says anything otherwise. They only say a, a Christian can't commit, or at least can't kill. But sometimes I think the way they approach it, 
uh, made it easy for next generations to, I won't say exploit, because I don't know that it was done on purpose, but to take that and interpret it maybe in a different way, that perhaps they like, huh, we wouldn't have thought that. And so if we go and look at that, we can then look at ourselves and go, okay, you know, especially us as pacifists, go, okay, um, but are we setting up and what our communities 100 years later or 200, 300 years later, look at our teachings and, and our mindset and then be able to, you know, adapt them in a way that we didn't expect once some big change happens? And so that's another thing I think we can look at and see some of the similarities and the, the things that we don't like to happen in the church. And you talk to a Catholic and there are things that they go, yep, you know. Shouldn't have done that. You're right. You know, a fault there. The church isn't perfect. Everybody's willing to see that. Sometimes, as any historian um, or any history, we, you know, we can look back and see maybe some of the same things that maybe don't look like they're going to turn there, but but could. So I think that's another. That's one thing that I've gotten a lot from it. Yeah, as maybe an example of that. I know that the Anabaptists, in particular, um, you know, since they're very big on forgiveness and nonviolence, like when it comes to sexual assaults in the church, there's mm-hmm. a lot of Oh well, you know he repented. Let's just let's just kind of brush this under the rug, and it's kind of used to avoid um, conflict in a sense. Um, and so their nonviolence can actually be um, very problematic in in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. So yeah, and I would add to that. For me, I think what blew me away. So the the early aspect is really important, like you pointed out, because I think if you're a disciple or a disciple of a disciple. You're probably more apt to get it to get it right, but the other thing was the univocality, because you can find some weird things from like this guy or that guy or maybe a couple guys, um, but there's just it's just univocal about nonviolence and ev- everything you get prior to Constantine. So um, that was that was what was powerful to me because I didn't expect to find anything on uh, you know on the topic really. Um, what what's interesting about that is i i was almost i i felt the same thing but then when as i went to look i was almost the opposite surprised because then i expected lots of works on it but the only like straight up like work against violence that i know is tertullian's the crown or whatever crown or something and i think though and i was like what then why don't they write extensively on this i think it was just assumed like, why do they have to write this big tract on this thing? Like, just like, of course we don't do. Why Why would I have to write about the huge thing about not sexually assaulting something? Obviously, you know it. Maybe you'll throw it in. So I think that's actually, sometimes it gets thrown as a criticism, but I, I think it's actually kind of points to why did they, why would they need to? <laughs> it was known that. Yeah, and, and I think that that's uh, that univocality and the, the assumption of it is important because... I think sometimes it, what's levied is, you know, like with uh, with the Bible. Well, you just pick and choose. Like, you know, Jesus said not to not to hurt your enemies, but he also said to gouge out your eye. Like, why do you pick this uh, to keep and choose this other thing not to? And I think you can levy the same thing about the early church. Well, why don't you take their view of sexuality, but you take their their view of nonviolence? Well, it's because they're univocal on the nonviolence. Yeah. As far as I know. Pretty much all the, you know, heretics or whatever would be too, um, which almost seems a push against if you want to go for orthodoxy. But it's like it doesn't even matter. Even even where it would go, something uh, where you know the arc of all heretics would still go towards that. And it's just like, 
<laughs> like who are we to say every single person when they come up with the most orthodox and the least orthodox are against it? But everybody got wrong. Every single person that we know have got it completely wrong. It's just, yeah. It's I think it's interesting that I can you know pull in like these other guys that I would like be really scared to ever quote in. But like, but even they did. That's how strong the the um that that constant strain is. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't I didn't even think about that or realize. I that. think most people are scared to maybe <laughs> mention some of those people. But yeah. Um, Okay, well, we better. That was kind of a long introduction, but good. I think important, you know, because why do you, why do we care about what happened? So that's important. Um, so let's let. I want you to talk a little bit about the uh, birth of Christendom, and you you alluded to you know this this change that happened at Constantine, um, or changes ish. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you how would you describe the anti-Nicene Church and then the post-Constantinian Church? Like, what are what are some of the the big differences that you see? If and, and I know that these are going to be broad generalizations, um, mm-hmm. but but go ahead. Um, real fast, did my screen disappear or anything? My camera's still going, right? No, yeah, I can see. Okay, you. I'm changing spaces. I have um, some notes, so I just want to make sure as I swap right. over to the notes that I don't disappear. Um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, some of the things that changed here, uh, let me see if I can find my thing. Um, well, okay. So of course on on the broad scale, scale, eventually, um, they, they call for, it's not so much that the Christians themselves are going into war or whatever. Um, but they start calling on support. So like when we talk about Augustine, which obviously we will, sometimes you get the idea that like he was going in there calling arms and it was like his followers going in there. Uh, the big controversy was, uh, he wasn't, he didn't want to sully his hands, but he, you know, they would call on the, the government to do it. So we get this idea and we see it even in the new Testament that the, um, the government is for justice and, you know, these different sort of things. And in the new Testament, we see some sort of a, well, I would believe we see some sort of a, just it's them, right. They're the pagan government. But now once we get there on our side, um, well, we're for justice too. And you're for just, but now you're with us. So now you're on our side and they, and it's not immediate because that isn't how they thought it, but that's one way that they were able to sort of justify what they did. So one of the things is they start to call now later on, um, and let's see, uh, I mean, we already had some Christians in the army and stuff and what we see, I think you had a, a podcast on this, right? With, the, um, the, um, what are they called? The different, yeah, uh, yeah. the, sorry, what's the specific, the church orders and stuff. We see the church orders becoming you can't be a soldier at all. Well, you can, but you can't. Well, okay, but you can, but you can't join it. Well, okay, you know, and, and so we get that more and stuff. So that is happening, but there's still not like a wholesale. Let's go up. We're not getting crusades or anything. Um, but as as uh, time goes on, we do. But right afterwards, or at least a generation or so, we start calling on them to help us. And uh, so with the Donatist um, controversy, is this big rivalry that started in, in about three hundred but didn't really become a problem until about 347, 350, and then really kind of accumulated around 400. Uh, Constantine had tried to deal with it, kind of gave up. 
and then it became a really big issue. It was um, the Donatists were actually the the main church in North Africa, so they were actually the majority where this was happening. This is where Augustine is. So he fought really hard, and finally he he just kind of gave up and was like, "All right, you get them right." And, and so that was really that scene is a, such a pivotal moment. Um, and again, it's not controversial that it is pivotal. It just whether that way they get good or not. And that was one of the biggest things was that we can. Even if we're not doing it, we can use the government behind us, which then eventually goes to, and hey, why can't we also do it? Yeah. There are also some interesting smaller things. Like if you see, um, um, uh, I, I can't think of his name right now, but uh, he was another North African uh, uh, bishop of Carthage. can't think of his name right now. But, uh, Origin? He, no, a little bit later, he was after Tertullian. Okay. You would know him. He did a lot of nonviolent stuff too. Um, Cyprian, mm, Cyprus, okay. Cyprus, Cyprian, uh, Cyprian, something like that. Okay. See why. <laughs> uh, anyway, he um, he converted later, and I believe he was richer or something. And he's talked about some of the difficulties becoming a Christian. And I think, if I remember correctly, he, he kind of liked it. It drew them to the Christian church, but it was also hard. But it was like the fancy dress and the opulence and stuff. But the Christians didn't have that. And shortly after Constantine, a generation or two maybe, um, they were, you know, the clergy were decked in all this stuff. So much so that I think in the late 4th century, um, there was a movement against that sort of thing. So it was big enough to where some people wanted to push against it, which seems sort of small to us, but that would have been pretty big to them. We were just these humble people. They were kind of the back. I mean, you know, they were more educated at times, but they were still kind of known for being kind of dirty and stuff. And now they're, they look just like the rest of the rich upper class sort of thing. Um, I think there are a lot of implications there that we could go into. Yeah. But obviously the, the biggest thing comes down to that marriage between the two um, and using the church, which eventually becomes kind of joining with them or sorry, using the government. Yeah. It was, it was fascinating to me when I discovered, cause you know, I think, I think I'm kind of landing more in the middle now because I've, I've heard some people, especially more towards the, the nonviolent side who want to villainize Constantine, maybe for good reasons at times, but just act as if like, well, all of a sudden, you know, he just did everything to the church. Um, and what's interesting is like, when you look at Augustine, you're, you're exactly right. Like he, he legitimized the state to do violence. But I remember when I discovered that, well, he was against personal non, like a personal violence, like he, he's not for self-defense. And that in my mind doesn't make sense because as a an American Christian, you know, it, the two are tied together. Like my government protects my freedom to kill other people if they if they come after me. Like it's one and the same thing: the government and my my rights and um, all that. So th that was fascinating. And then, like other things, like the the um, and at the Council of Nicaea, the you know, Canon Twelve, I think it is, which says don't go return to the army. You're like, oh, that's that's actually after Constantine mm -hmm. or I don't remember exactly when the Synod of Arles was, but it was in the three hundreds and it said, Hey, look, during times of peace, Christians, you need to maintain your commitment to the army, but during times of war, you can leave because then mm -hmm. you'd have to kill, kill people. And so it's like, okay, you, you do have these remnants that show like, it's not Constantine didn't just come in and like make all these changes that the church capitulated. 
And maybe that's something that you could speak to. Um, how how rapid was the change? Like, wh- what do you what do you see the pro- process as? Because you now we're here saying that nonviolence was uh, the early church was univocal, but then Constantine came in and changed it, and it doesn't seem like somebody could come in and just snap their fingers and change something that's so ingrained into the the Christian core. So like, were there seeds of, of violence in the church prior to Constantine that he kind of exploited or like, what does that process look like? Yeah. Another interesting thing. Yeah. Cause when you go to the more nonviolent side, they villainize him to, to a pretty big degree. And there is a lot to go you know, in favor of that. But um, I also, it's interesting. I, I don't know that I never noticed till how you're talking, but that's how we think about. It. I don't know that Const. I don't think he was really trying to do anything. When we get to Augustine, he was he he was fully you know he knows church and churches. He knows what he's doing and the changes. He knows he's making a change. Um, he says you know there are strains before him, but Constantine was just running his empire, man. He just, you know, he wanted unity and he liked this and he thought the sun god, which he later finds out to be the Christian god, this, whatever. I don't even know if he knew that they didn't like different things, right? Like the army and whatnot. I don't know that from what I understand, I don't even think he tried to. It was just sort of the natural thing. So in some ways, it's like it's really the the church people that were doing it, I suppose. Um. But no, uh, obviously he had an influence, and maybe he has more than I thought. But it, it starts before uh, uh, Yoder, uh, Howard Yoder, um, has what he called the creeping empire loyalty. Uh, sort of a, like, ah, a, oh, maybe the empire isn't so bad after all, you know? We get into Pax Romana, and most of the Christians, there's some skirmishes outside, but there's no huge wars, and most of the Christians are inside anyway. So, you know, you got your presence there, but it... It's kind of nice. It is safe. It is nice to know that some, you know, countries from the other side aren't going to come in and wipe you out and stuff. So you start to go, oh, okay. Um, we also have this idea sometimes that Christians were super heavily persecuted from day one all the way to him, and they weren't. They weren't highly favored, and there were a few um, eras of heavy persecution. But a, a lot of the time, like, I don't believe Origen was doing any sort of a thing. So, you know, there are probably some things he could have gotten in trouble on. But for the most part, you keep your head down, you can go, and you go, hmm, it's nice. Another sort of change with that is the world starts to become the cultural world, Caesar's world. And then the barbarians and all these other people out there, we don't pray for them as much. We even have some Christians out there, but we're not as concerned about them because we get so into this. So and we see this even with Origen, who um, didn't think Christian could do violence. Um, occasionally, people will try to talk against him and say, yeah, but he said, like, the emperor or whatever. And so, but he, go, but he goes, if the emperor and everybody became Christian, he didn't say, then we'd use the sword for righteous things. He would just... Of course, we'd still be nonviolent. Everybody would just be converted. But uh, you see kind of a positivity of like, he's not super anti So we sort of get these creeping loyalties and like, yes, we pray for your victories because we don't want those barbarians coming in and destroying our peace. So it's just these little these little ideas where you can see could pretty, it's not that hard to flop <laughs> when you get that. So that's, that's um, 
Oh, one of the things that I, I see. We also see some, uh, there's a strain of optimism within that. So, um, so like I said, with, with origin and stuff, um, Eusebius, um, who, um, was kind of like the church, what historian, I guess. Uh, and he did later work with Constantine and stuff, but even before that, he talked about, uh, let's see, um, he explained that the Roman empire as part of God's design was part of God's design and envisioned a church ever expanding and happy ending. It was rudely postponed by Diocletian and this persecution, but now it can be continued with Constantine. But we see that this idea before is like, oh, maybe we can live with them. And so that, if that wasn't there, I don't think it ever really would have been able to be possible. Um, and so there's that, uh, another thing. Uh, and, and we see some things about, um, I don't know how to say his name, Lactantius. Another later Christian who was pretty vehemently against war, and and earlier at least, and he said that all you know different violence and stuff is uh, because of uh, paganism and like polytheism and worshiping the wrong god. Well, it doesn't take too far to go to that and say so. Know how we stop this? We get rid of them, right? Stuff like that. Or and this is one thing that I think it's it's big. This is I haven't seen specifically talked about, but it's something that's always bothered me. Um, so Lactentius, and I think Eusebius did this too, is they would write, um, sometimes pretty gruesome things of, uh, different people who had persecuted the church and the untimely fate that they met. See what happens when you persecute us. We didn't do it, but see, and I see this a lot in Tertullian and these other people, um, where they talk about love of enemy, but I locate their pacifism and refusal to be nonviolent. I mean, in copying Jesus and stuff, but like kind of the reason for that rather than just uh, imitation is um, God will have revenge, which is very, very biblical, but that becomes kind of the center point. And so it's like, yes, I know you're suffering now. Don't you worry though, they're going to get it. And not just like a sort of a, they'll get it eventually, but like we revel in that fact sort of a thing. Uh, that's the kind of feeling that I get. So once we go um, and Christians are now favored, they now have, one, the power <laughs> to do this. Whereas before, it's maybe, you know, people say this about Paul, who don't uh, favor the nonviolence position. They say, well, he only did the nonviolence position so that, you know, they don't get wiped out. Um well, I don't think that's true. Uh, there, there is a, a practicality to that. And now they have the power to wipe them out. And it's like, well, and now you can say, and we don't just have the power because we're allowed to, but the Christ, the emperor is Christian. Now we are God's vengeance. So that's not what Tertullian meant, but it's not too far to skip there. So I think that was also a strain. Whereas had the root been the love of enemy, which is where I mainly place it, uh, you can't make that jump. I don't know. Maybe you can. We'll, no, that's, we'll see. That's, we'll that's, see in two years when somebody listens to this and takes my words and <laughs> and justifies something. But when you love enemy, it doesn't matter if you have the power to. It doesn't matter if God is ordaining your government. You still love them. You can't do it. And he talks about that, but I think that that kind of misplaced, possibly because of the long, the persecution that they endured that I did not. Um, that's nice to know that there's that justice where I don't really... 
I, you know, I, I guess I, I'm understanding where that came from, but I think that was a big part that made it easy to, especially for the masses, maybe not for the church leaders, for the masses are like, yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now we can finally do what we've kind of been wanting to do. Yeah. That's, that's very helpful. Cause I think, I think that makes a ton of sense. Um, n- now that you mention it, it's like, oh, well, yeah, duh. That, just because they didn't kill people and advocated not killing people doesn't mean that they had a heart that had the positive ethic of, of loving enemy. So that, that's good. Um, yeah, and the, another thing that you said in there um, was, I think, very explanatory for me in that uh, I, when I was reading Salvian's uh, On the Government of God, um, he was talking about how like godly the barbarians were compared to the Romans. And you discover that, well, there are actually quite a lot of barbarians who are Christians, like consider yeah. themselves Christians. And so this, yeah, the it's like before before empire was joined with Christianity, like the borders of Christianity were endless. Like there was no no us and them in in some border. It was Christians of the world, the Catholic Church. Um, but all of a sudden, when you when you marry empire, now you have a border, and there's an us and there's a them. Um, and so there, I mean, Christians are killing Christians. Um, barbarians and Romans early, early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we see that, like I said, you can see that a little bit in uh, Origen, who was before that. However, in Origen, you still see the, but the, they'd be converted too, right? He still, he can still, as far as I can see, he still would like the barbarian. They're still capable of it. They're not barbarians, how we think of the term of like brutish and incapable. But once you solidify that and you become married to the church or the, sorry, the the state, you, they're now the barbarians forever, <laughs> sort of thing. You're right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so can you, because um, we haven't talked specifically about the Donatist controversy yet, and I think yeah. that's, that's going to be an important focal point. Can you kind of set up uh, uh, the controversy, like how long after Constantine, um, what got it started, and, and how, did, how was it treated by the church? Okay, so it actually starts in about okay. So the um, in three oh one three three I think yeah three oh three to three eleven or so, a little bit longer for some. There's the great persecution. So this is uh, pre Constantine, and um, excuse me, other persecutions seem to be less directed at Christians, more just you know. Make sure you follow the cult of the emperor, whatever it is. This one was more directed towards Christians. And uh, there was a threat of um, uh, four edicts called uh, church buildings could be destroyed, sacred writings burned, Christians could use their, lose their civil rights, and clergy could be impris- imprisoned and stuff if they didn't uh, sacrifice and do this. Um, and later even could be killed if they didn't do that. So um, you get some people who refuse. Um, to sacrifice and stuff. You get some people who give in and you get some people who would forge a paper saying that you did, but you didn't actually give in anything. So afterwards, um, there's a lot of controversy as to what to do with the, the people who have lapsed, right? Because then a lot of them are like, okay, oops, sorry, I went, I went back in now. Um, and there's huge controversy. So that's actually where it starts. So the Donatists are on the more extreme side of 
either don't let them back in or I don't know exactly what their point of view is. I know some would. Uh, they can, you know, offer, they'll never ever be able to partake of um, the sacraments again, but they can kind of be part of our church. And as long as they're all offer penance every day or every week or whatever, when they die, they'll, they'll be accepted kind of in the church. I don't know exactly what the Donatists were, but there were several groups that did this, but the Donatists are somewhat remarkable because they became so widespread. The others were small. It's not a big deal. Like I said, the majority in North Africa. So in about, um, let's see, there's this, uh, in 347. So, so Constantine actually, so before 347, I'm sorry, Constantine tried to work with them a little bit and, um, their big thing. I'm sorry, I missed a part. So the reason why this comes in with the Catholic Church is then uh, the Donatists said, okay, but like I forgot the names, but like Felix or something uh, was a lapsy. He he lapsed, and then he baptized this guy or whatever. Now he's your bishop, and your bishop is illegitimate because he was baptized by this guy or this guy who was baptized by this guy. So it's all legitimate all the way down. Um, and so that's why the Catholics would get really frustrated because they were a little bit. Difficult, if you might say. Uh, so Constantine was trying to resolve this, and he kind of gave up. But uh, he gave, uh, he had a trial to see if they could figure out if they had forged documents. And they got two, in the end, got three trials, and all trials went against the Donatists. So by this point, they look like extremists, and everybody's pointing. Of course, in Africa, they don't think so. They think that, you know, that it was rigged or whatever it was. So that's kind of where it starts. In 347... Um, Constance, not Constantine, but the next emperor, Constance, um, was trying, uh, had a, a big campaign, I guess, where he was um, giving out money to the poor throughout, um, giving alms to the poor, which would include the Donatists. And of course, part of it was to give to the poor. Part of it was like to like butter them up and stuff and get them part of it. Uh, and one of the guys, uh, Macarius, he presided over the mass and he... For the Eucharist, he put up uh, imperial images on on the thing. So when they would go up to worship, they would be like, be bowing to these. And we don't know that he did it on purpose or he was just ignorant. And it was a really bad PR move. But the um, Donatist, the man, was obviously very against that. Like, see, they're trying to get us to do this and whatever. And so they, they rebelled against that. And so then we get this huge thing. And he did... This is all very difficult to tell what happened, but to be fair, to be neutral, he called on these people called the Circumcellions, who we know lots about them and nothing about them, but they were sort of freedom fighters as far as I can tell. And I don't know that they were really attached to the Donatist church, except he kind of called on them to like keep them away so that they don't defile our, our places. And then they get associated with the Donatist for being violent and stuff. Um. So, but this is important because what happens is, uh, so Donatism becomes, um, they, they, they ban it or whatever. And uh, Macarius, or sorry, um, Donatus and a few others of the leaders get banished and they refuse to go. And so uh, what happens is they silently get killed, pushed over a, a cliff. Donatist and I think uh, Maximus or something, one other guy. Right, right. So that's literal. That's not figurative. Like, So literal, yeah. Um, okay. Now, Augustine didn't – he didn't believe that it actually happened. Um, and we're like, who knows? But he goes, because they have all the, the – that's not how Rome executes people. 
um, they would do a legitimate way. But the whole point was that it was illegitimate. Right? The whole point is they couldn't just go doing it. So they do it in the, in the dead of night and they quietly push them over the end and kill them. And one of the reasons to do that is to avoid martyrs. Um, and they got found out. So now they're the biggest martyrs. And now this church is the church of the martyrs. They already kind of were before because, you know, they had that stance of during persecution. And now that's what they're about. And this is when it really starts to get fired up. Um, and they start to get um, attacked for, so I've already kind of mentioned their attacks on Catholicism, well, the Catholic side of things. And then the Catholics would attack them for, of course, divisors of unity. They love controversy. That's all their thing. If they would just join with us, except they, they love, um, you know, division and stuff. And for extremists and violence, again, a lot they attach to those circumcilians. And um, for what they would call suicide. So these guys, a lot of times they were circumcilians, but they would go and supposedly do things to provoke people to kill them to become martyrs. So you go into a pagan temple, destroy the stuff, the pagans would get mad, kill you, you're a martyr, you got exactly what you wanted. Uh, we're not exactly, it's clearly exaggerated. Some of it may have happened, some of it we think like they were going to get killed anyway, so they do it in a way. Um, so then they, they start making laws We're like, but you're not a martyr if you did this first. <laughs> so if you destroyed some property and get killed because of it, you're not a martyr anymore. So this is where it kind of comes from and they're trying to go. Uh, and so it eventually comes to head, um, in, oh, was it 411? I, I believe is when it really comes to Augustine finally kind of changes his stance, goes, we, uh, this is bad and it's affecting other things. If we just persecute them and stuff, um, they'll stop. And of course he doesn't say it quite like that. He loves the image of the, of the surgeon, right? I know it's painful. You don't understand, but this is, it's for your own good. And he even talks about things. I, I know some people, they didn't like it when they went in there and, you know, got roughed up and stuff, but now they're so grateful because, because of that, they got to the true faith sort of thing. So that was his thing. Like, uh, and, uh, in his defense, Augustine, again, people on our side of the fence often see him as like this bloodthirsty, kill them all. He didn't want them to be killed, and he, he pleaded and pleaded for them to be less brutal with them. Surely, partially, was because then it creates martyrs, and it does the opposite of the cause. But I'll give him the benefit of the doubt that he didn't really want to go in there and do that. Which, again, we see this sort of slow progression. Well, I'm still not going to attack anybody. But I can have the government to do it. But let's still, it's not quite, you know, starting a war. They are still part of our citizens. We do it. And then we'll go further down. Um, so that's why it's so important is this really sticky group and they couldn't get rid of them. And they were very stubborn, a little bit self-righteous, wouldn't go. And uh, you couldn't really do that anywhere else. But they, they were able to kind of fit the situation for North Africa to where they were able to persecute them without creating the martyrs and eventually it wins out, and then now we have presidents to use the government for things. Whereas before, even when they were going, both sides uh, were really hesitant. Um, one, one way that you could attack the other side is saying, you're just using the government to pick on us. Both sides would do that. And at this point, he goes, well, yeah, essentially. And, and he, he changes mind. He, he says, people wonder why I changed my mind. He's, he's very, again, not controversial. He himself says it. Um, but that's kind of where it comes from, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's helpful to uh, 
I want there to be more clear-cut answers like, nope, Constantine was evil. He just came in and changed everything. Or Augustine was uh, terrible. He just was bloodthirsty. Um, and I remember reading uh, Leonard Verduin's uh, work, and, and that was the first place I came in contact with the Donatus. And, you know, he and a lot of others in, in our persuasion um, – they kind of elevate the Donatists as like, well, they had the true faith and were carrying it along and they were persecuted. And I was talking to a, a friend who's, who's, um, you know, whose focus in his graduate's uh, degrees was on Augustine. And he's like, yeah, they were, they were kind of big, um, <laughs> looking for an appropriate word. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they were, like you said, self-righteous. They were self-righteous, arrogant, um, jerks like the the Donatists, a lot of them were uh, so it, yeah it's it's not nearly as clear-cut there what i think is clear-cut is yeah all of a sudden they started getting killed by christians and that's a problem it yeah. seems to me at least mm-hmm. yeah um yeah when you look into them i think another reason why people think that is a lot um of people that I know, I've heard that too, but they tend to be more on the Anabaptist side, whether or not they're not are not, and they sound like Anabaptists. They they baptize again because uh, they didn't accept the Catholic baptism, and they accepted a really high standard for morality, and they didn't like the government and stuff. But it's all those reasons are for radically radically different reasons than the Anabaptists ever thought. So they're very very surface level things. Um, mm-hmm. So so you would say. Like if if you looked at uh, the church under Augustine and the church, you know his his group, and the Donatists, are they all Christians? Um, is there one group that's Christian or one group that's more Christian than another, or are they just Christian in different ways? Because I can't imagine going into a mosque and defiling the mosque, you know, which is essentially what the Donatists were were doing. That sounds yeah. terrible. So like. Who are the Christians? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad that you specifically mentioned like the mosque thing because I was surprised that I knew by this point it would be more black and white, but I thought that still they pretty much didn't do violence. But they were, they were, I don't know that they hurt people, but the Christians also did. I believe the Catholics did too. And all the bishops on both sides were like, stop burning down temples and stuff. But the people are doing it. As to who, which is a Christian, you know, I, not that it's <laughs> my decision to say anyway, but it's hard to say. I mean, there are things like, I think that almost everybody would look at Augustine and say, yeah, his, cause he would get really frustrated with the Donatists. Like, well, this guy, two, three generations down, he, he, uh, he betrayed our church. So everybody that he baptized is now illegitimate. And he's like, well, who, let's just say you're right. But can't we look at their merits now? And I think most people go like, "Yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty reasonable," you know. And so we we'd go there. But then you also see um, he's mean. <laughs> he was really mean in his words, at least, really harsh. And it's interesting because it was him and uh, another guy that is not quite as famous. I forgot his name, but um, Optatus or something. Uh, who were who really writing against the Donatists. And it started out more friendly. Oh, they're Christians. Maybe what we'd see, maybe a different denomination. But, you know, we're, we're still brothers and stuff. They just have these different things. But it's this controversy that made both sides just 
just hate the other side to where they wouldn't consider the other one Christian anymore. And so I, I don't know, as opposed to which one I would agree with more, it's, I, I also don't know because we're, we get most of the Donatist side through the, the Catholic side, which is very obviously not unbiased. Okay, so, so a lot of what we know on, on the Donatist <laughs> might be a little bit of propaganda. The vast okay. majority, right. So like we, we know that it's probably exaggerated how much the like what they would call suicide runs, the martyrdom runs would be, but we don't know exactly how much or whatever. Um, I do not feel a very strong affinity to the Donatist Church, if I'm totally honest. Um, here, okay, this is speculative though, and this is maybe sort of getting at the heart of what you're you're asking though. I don't know which side I would go on. Obviously, I look at it not part of either tradition, and I can go, oh, there's good and bad, and I'm sure they're good people and eats and stuff. But even if we take the Catholic side, I think that their approach, though quicker, did more harm in a few different ways. Um, I can understand why there are so many hurt feelings. I explain that that one part where they get pushed off the edge, because like you're not going to be able to convince people that they're all friends if you think that you're in you know, if you're defending these people, well, go a generation or two and people start to sort of forget that perhaps. Um, and you, you wait a little bit and you sort of let them have their thing and you don't take the churches and you don't destroy things and you don't kill them and you don't do this and give it some time. And then they'll be more willing to maybe open up a dialogue. You say the call for unity is just a veil for, uh, one of the historians uh, I was reading wrote, the, the absurdity of what the circumcillians would do of kill me or I'll kill you. Um, you know, oh, you won't kill, okay, I'll kill you, I'll go to the next guy until I finally get murdered. What was met with the equally thing of accept our charity or die sort of thing, right? And so it's sort of a, a fake thing. But if they didn't have that and just kind of let them go and said, we really want unity as long as there's disunity, it's on your end, but we won't push it farther. We won't force you until you're ready. I have a feeling within a generation or two, things would be lighter between the two and some discussions would take place. And as far as we know, eventually they could go. I mean, look at Catholics and Protestants, bloody, bloody between the two. And a division is always hard. And, you know, well, 500 years later, now we're finally starting to see some people as, you know, hundreds of years of not violently killing each other. Finally, we're starting to see, you know, this ecumenical movement being able to have dialogue being able to discuss, even if I think they're not true Christians, at least we can talk and go with them. And there are a lot of people saying, you know what, are those even essential differences? And it takes a long time, but it can happen. But as soon as they decided they need to join us now and agree with us now or they're gone, we've severed any any chance of that. That's, that's a really good point, you know, about the ecumenical movement now after Christianity has had some peace for, for a while, at least in the, in the West. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I, yeah, I don't know where I'd land because I, I agree with you about the um, the Donatist nitpicking about the the baptism and you know the, the validity of of that. Um, nevertheless, it's always difficult for me to want to side with the group that uh, <laughs> killed people and burned books. Usually, that's not the right side. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. If I were to and I. It's not just me as an amateur. From what I understand, we don't, like I said, circumcilians are one of the groups that we know so much about. There's so much literature of them in ancient times that we don't really know anything about them. But from what I understand, 
And it's largely thought that they're kind, they're not really Donatists, they're freedom fighters in some way, and they, they sided with them because they were the underdogs. I mean, they were, they were the main in, in North Africa, but they were the ones getting bullied. They were the ones where the, the, the overall uh, empire was picking on them. So, you know, there, there is a point to go with them. Yeah. So um, I have a lot of sympathy for them, but not specifically with their beliefs. But I, I yeah. Yeah. So that brings me to another question that, that I really wrestle with um, because when you say, okay, well, after Constantine and Augustine and all that, you basically, you lose the voice of an alternate church. You get a state-sanctioned church. You've got the emperor presiding over councils um, and and kind of persecuting heretics or at least applying pressure or incentives to the, the, the state-sponsored church. That... You know, th- there's the, a saying that the the winners write history, and when I when I think about orthodoxy and the orthodox faith and what that means and and valuing what we've been handed down, I feel like when I get to this point in history, like I can look at the early church and say, well, they they were univocal on nonviolence. I I can look at that and I feel like that's unadulterated orthodoxy that they're handing to me or, or what they believe they're handing to me. When I get to Constantine. I, I don't know, like it, it, it throws my understanding of orthodoxy into a tizzy because it's like, is this the faith handed down once for all? Like what parts of it have been the winners writing history? Because if, if violence for 1700 years has been orthodoxy, you know, just war theory, and that's very wrong, like what else is very wrong? So how do you, how do you work through that? Like not throwing out the baby with the bathwater Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, briefly, we see this some in the Reformation. There's more the radical wing, which would include Anabaptists, and then you get the people who, um, anti-Trinitarians, right? So like, anti-Trinitarians, an intense word, but like a Unitarian, maybe we'd say now, and stuff like that. Because some started to like, hold on, okay, but you're just going back to this point. Uh but even before, and then they completely rewrite it. So that that is something to go through, and I don't, <laughs> I don't have a great a great answer. It's something I I, I also uh, will probably always wrestle with to some degree. And I think, I guess I'll start with that. Is I think it's good to have that because if you're not wrestling with it, you've just settled down and decided you know, and you don't. <laughs> I think it was uh, it was N.T. Wright who said, any given point that I'm, I'm talking, I'm wrong by 20% of the stuff I'm saying. I just don't know what 20% that is. I would amp that number up a bit for me. But we, I think it's, it's, it's an appropriate thing to, to look at. And that doesn't mean we have to hit a whole agnosticism where nothing, we can't ever hold on to anything. But I think it's good to always be ready to, for an uncomfortable change. For example, nonviolence. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's good. Um, I mean, I like the anti right quote and stuff. Um, but yeah, for for me at this point, I think what it what it's done is I still hold on to things, but I hold on to them loosely. Um, like I remember reading Gregory of Nyssa, and so this this I think highlights the value for me of of going to the early church. And I read some of his stuff on the resurrection of the soul, and I was reading through it, and I was like, 
I think he's a universalist, but he, he can't be because he was an Orthodox Christian. And then you, do, you just start looking through early church history and you have annihilationists, you have universalists, and they were all getting along. It's like, or I mean, they, they were having nice discussions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they, were, they all considered each other Christians. And um, I think what, it, what it's done for me going to the early church is um, it hasn't overturned my Christianity, but it, it's really broadened what Christianity means because it's not just, you know, this, this one denomination within Protestantism that's truly Christian. It's like there are lots of people who are, are uh, theologically Christians. And I think it's, it's terrible what Protestantism does in its um, ultra exclusivity because pretty much we, we can't accept anybody from the early church uh, by, by our standards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because uh, I see that some with Catholics, in some ways Catholics are, are more broad, more accepting. But uh, there are different things where, you know, they'd love origin and all these different things. And you go, yeah, but look at all these things that they were wrong with the Christology or whatever. They go, but that's totally unfair. That was anti-Nicene. That was before they had it. I'm not sure why exactly it would matter. If they're wrong, they're still wrong, right? That comes from my probably more Protestant side. Who cares if it wasn't fair? If they're wrong, they're wrong. But it, I don't know. I don't know exactly where to go. Like I said, there, I don't. I, I like what you said. You, you you hold it, but you hold it loosely. Doesn't mean you can't have anything. But there is, uh, on the one sense, you know, you see. I mean, really early on, you know, uh, five, um, you know, five volumes on you know against the heretics and stuff. I mean, it's not like they were all they were against each other. They they were you know pretty pretty harsh at times. But there was a huge openness. Uh, you talk about yeah, like annihilationist. Um, the whatever infernalist traditional view, whatever, and, and universalist. And um, they disagreed, but they, they didn't, as far as I know, ever say, and therefore he's not a Christian. Even Augustine was like, oh, those universalists, those sappy sons of guns, but uh, they're not meaning to do anything. They just don't understand scripture and stuff, but they, but they mean well. And that is something you can't do now at all. And so, uh, you know, the... I don't know exactly the answer. I read it and, it and it's challenging and it's good. And I, and I go back and typically you stay with your beliefs because you have reasons for that. And you've grown up with it. And you're just more likely to stay with that. But I'm less condemning of other ones. I realize no matter how much any of us know we're wrong, even if I'm completely correct about everything, I still don't know everything. Like I'm still not all right. I, at the very best, I'm not wrong about anything, if that makes sense. Um, so it, it, and there's a, like, at what point then, because now, especially Protestantism, but I think it's everywhere. Um, there's really an emphasis on like correct belief sort of thing over everything else. And it's like, but at what point is it correct enough? Because if we all have certain points, it's incorrect, but I do think that belief is important. So I wouldn't say it doesn't matter at all, but it's hard to know, like at what point, but I'm much less concerned about that now. There are people who have views, and I probably have some strong ones where Jesus is the centrality. He um, embodies the Father perfectly. You look at him, you will see the Father right there, and we are to imitate him. And I think as long as we can agree on that, I could probably go pretty well with most people. I even have discussions with people who have different views on him on what exactly divinity 
his divinity was and stuff like that. And it's troubling at times, but I find that for the most part, it doesn't even come up. Because for the most part, we still see the Father through him, and we still think that whatever he said, and so it's like, wow, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if you have to be Trinitarian or whatever, um, but, but it makes me less quick to just like, well, they're not a real Christian and stuff, and there's, there's, there's more tension in there. But I don't know where I, I would draw the line. One thing that I, I find um, interesting is uh, this missionary, uh, E. Stanley Jones, was very big into the ecumenical movement. He was in India, friends with Gandhi, so that time period. And he was very orthodox. He looked at his beliefs. He's belief-wise, he's very orthodox. But he just he wanted the unity of the church so bad, so bad. And he wanted very similar to what I said. As long as we just see Christ as the central, and we long to follow him and go in him, and he is the central, then all the rest, as incredibly important as it is, uh, we can put that as like kind of a secondary, but we're all brothers and sisters once we do that. We might be very distant at times and stuff, but but if that if that can be it, and he mentions this one thing, he has a really superb book on um, the Sermon of the Mount, and uh, you can get it online for free. Uh, and he, on there, he he's trash talking Constantine, and he goes the the. Um, like the creeds and stuff are really important. He goes, and I think the creeds important, and I and I believe in the creeds and stuff. But it's it's important to note that the uh, nowhere is the Sermon on the Mount in our creeds, and how different would it be had that been put in our creeds? If it said, you know, I believe in you know God is this and Jesus is this and blah blah, and that you know we don't do this and he didn't do this and we didn't do this. We couldn't have Constantine. We couldn't have this. We couldn't have this. We couldn't have this because this sort of behavioral belief system, not as some sort of a rigid law system, but that becomes part of, I mean, it's orthopraxy, but we can see it like that's part of orthodoxy as well in terms of just the correctness of it. But we've pretty much just reduced it to this creed. Uh, kind of forgotten that the creed is just a shorthand for what we should really know behind it. And it's just like checklist. Yep. You got them all. And it's done. And that means we exclude a lot of other people, and we and then we include that like you know, really we we have to ex- exclude them because of this, but you know, and then we include a lot of people like we're including them, <laughs> you know. And I'm not real big on seeing who I should or shouldn't include, but um, I you know, I'm stumbling around because I don't have an answer, but I think that it's difficult and that we need to be more open with it. And we can hold firm to our beliefs and never step back from what we believe while also realizing that at some points we should reevaluate and see where we are wrong at different points and not be so quick to push somebody as, uh, claim somebody as non-Christian. There may be a point where we decide at this point, I can't consider you a Christian, but I think we can be uh, a lot slower to do that than we do now. And when you read the early church, as extreme as they can be, they do that a lot more than you would think. Uh, I heard that and I read them. And I was like, oh, what are you talking about? They're, they're really into orthodoxy and, and there's correct beliefs. But then you step back and you go, like, actually, they weren't so much. They weren't going and trying to totally get rid of them. At, at times they did, say Marcion or something. But um, there's a much, it's much more open than perhaps we know. And, and just having that humility, I think, goes a long, long way. And going back to what I said before, I think that opens the chance for everybody, yourself and others, to then come to a more correct view. 
But if you're just like, oh, wrong belief, you're wrong, you're just distorting scripture, whatever, well, they're never going to listen to you. They're just going to be, become more entrenched in that beliefs, may become more extreme beliefs there, and then break off and then have their own little group, and then would never be reconciled. So if yeah, we have and- a bit more openness, we have more likeliness to then come together and have similar beliefs, in fact. Yeah, and, and the things that they were nitpicky on and were willing to push back more on was uh, tended to be orthopractic from, from my limited reading of the early church. Um, yeah, yeah, my, my, from what I see as well, yeah. Uh, not always, but, but even a lot of times when it wasn't, it tended to have the implication. Of that, not just like yeah. some random thing. There tends to be some implication of, and therefore, that's why you behave like this, or you wouldn't behave like this, sort of a thing. Yeah, and if if you would, if you remember, uh, shoot me a link for that that book that you're talking about, because um, <laughs> I'd be interested to read it, and I could I could put it in the notes. Yeah, no um, problem. So I I've got two more questions that I want to get to, and then um, we'll see see where it uh, where we go. But I guess one of the questions that might be helpful, and, and this would be speculative, so if, if you just feel like you have no idea how to answer it, that that's fine. But I think a comparison would be helpful because you, you talked about early issues that were addressed by the church. Um, so when we get Constantine Augustine sword um, kind of enforcing orthodoxy uh, and disputes, what did disputes look like in the church before this? Like, so, so that we can compare, because I think, like you said, sometimes people are like, well, you know, what else are we going to do? Like, well, we have to do it this way or, or whatnot. So, so seeing kind of a comparison, I think might be helpful to say, okay, I have a vision for what it would look like without sword. And, and you also talked about it a little bit earlier where you, where you said, um, you know, now that we're in the West without the sword for 70 years ish, uh, you know, we, we are more ecumenical. So talk about, talk about maybe some early examples of how they handled controversy and what, what that might look like today. Yeah. I haven't been able to find too much. I find that really interesting too. Maybe other people have not. Um, for what I've seen is they tend to write mean things, right? They write uh, polemical things like, you know, here's several volumes on this and attacking them. So just try to convince people. Or they would just excommunicate them or something. So generally it wouldn't be like a whole church, right? Um, it would be, you know, Arius or or somebody. And he'd be a bishop and then they would... I, and I don't even know. I've looked it up and I don't even know because excommunication can mean different things. It can mean you just not... You can't partake of the sacraments. Uh, you're completely gone forever. You can't go in the church. I think it was more of that for the bigger ones. But they just said, okay, nope, you're not part of us, and they just did their own thing. I, I, I don't recall anything of them ever, like, and then following Arius as he went down, they only got mad if he step, kept trying to influence their people. But they didn't, like, we have to wipe him out from the place. They were concerned about their group, and, you know, and they would spread out, and then that was important as well. But if he's not part of the group, then he's not part of the group, and it, it's not a big deal. So when so it influenced them, they cared, and they just kicked him out <laughs> as far as I could tell. They would debate it and then kick him out. So it, it might be as simple as like a first Corinthians five thing where you know, this guy's having sex with his stepmom, and Paul's like, Hey guys, like have no part of them. Like as simple as that. I believe so. 
I believe okay. so. Um, however, we look at, say, to go back to the Anabaptists, they did that as well, and they splinter, 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 because, like, your hair is done the wrong way and stuff. And so they, they weren't that extreme, apparently. But when those big ones came to a head, as far as I can tell, they would write works against it and debate. I don't know how else debates were done. And then eventually, when they would get tired and neither side would give in, they would just say, well, be gone. Don't, don't influence our congregations. Um, which I'm not entirely sure why they didn't just do that with the Donatists to begin with. Maybe it was such a big group that it was harder to do that. Um, even before he changed, you know, Augustine changed his mind to use the sword. I'm not sure why they didn't just, why that wasn't his view, but he really, really wanted to do stuff. Maybe it was just a new option that they, that they had. Um, the way some of them read, I will be honest, I wouldn't be particularly surprised after a long time, they finally just gave up and said, you know what? And then, you know, used resources that they had. But I don't think that was even in their mindset. I don't, th I think it would have taken a while before they finally got to it. Um, yeah. So as far as I can tell, that's all it was. They would just talk. And if uh, nobody could come to it, then they just say, don't, don't be influenced by them. They're wrong. That sounds so anticlimactic. Like there, there's no resolution there. Nobody, you know, nobody's killed. the The problem isn't ended. It just, it just goes on. Um, but to be, to be fair, we do see that where we see these things. People probably say, "Yeah," and look at how long Arians went by or something. But to be fair, we also see, you know, Donatists and other stuff still linger on even afterwards. The sword mm -hmm. isn't as effective as we think. Yeah, so and and that that's a good segue to the last question that I had, which again is is speculative. Save the speculative ones for the end. Um, but I, I think you can probably build a, a case off of it from from what you've researched and talked about today. Um, so, as as United States citizens, um, well, I don't I don't think we can imagine. Like it, it's difficult for citizens of the United States to imagine what. Christianity looks like divorced from sword because our government's Christian and uh, and um, our government I mean bears the sword a lot um, what like what what do you see the uh, how has the the post Constantinian church uh, ideology impacted the world today and specifically the United States you know uh, a lot in my group, uh, conservative Christian group, are are trying to get their hands on the sword. They they want to get their Republican president in, um, and they want to control the world, and they want to bring religious freedom for Christians, and and kind of get atheists out of schools and stuff. So bear the sword against other religions and and enforce our version of morality and. Um, that sounds really good because I want to live at peace and I want to live in comfort. What do you, so I'm sorry, this is a really ambiguous question. It's more of me ranting. Talk about what, what impacts the sword has um, on Christianity in the West as, as we know it, um, how that's maybe bad and what it might look like if we didn't try to wield the sword. Well, I think, um, it 
just looks different in terms of, I'm not thinking so much as practical here right now, but the Christianity, like you, like you said, it's this idea of like, yeah, but our morality is the best, so it would be best if we just hard-armed people into it, and then they would be grateful sort of thing. Like I said, it goes back to Augustine. Um, and it's just such a different, we get the, you get the macho Jesus that we've seen in different preachers. Talk, oh, what was number of years ago mark driscoll mark driscoll yeah he could never yeah. worship somebody he could be in a fire or something ridiculous like that uh and he's a little bit of a goofball but i think that general sentiment of like yeah and, and we get there because the gospels don't really portray that except like two scenes and john and you know whatever the uh, so maybe twice he you know roughed up the the in the temple area uh but then you have to go to revelation and like, okay, he was weak and wimpy this time, but that's just because next time he's going to take him down. And so we, we've turned it into a tough guy religion. You start way all of the Jewish scriptures, and they're just, they're just like these. You know, you, you get Abraham, who's who's a rich guy, landowner. And then and then he has to go and wander around, so he kind of loses that. And then you just get a bunch of these like shepherds living, you know, we kind of glorify them now, but they're just like stinky, peasanty, shepherdy types of things. Not exactly peasant, but they're, you know, there's the big empire, Egypt, and they're just like the little, you know, people on the outside. And then they're slaves for 200 years. 200 years? 400? Uh, they're slaves. 400, yeah. 400, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, 400 years. And then they're wandering around the desert, and then they have, you know, have a brief time of like flourishing for like a few kings. And then they're just like, oh, the kings are bad and all this is happening. Oh no, Assyria came and took us. Oh, Babylon and all these things. And then we come to the New Testament when they're under occupation of Rome. And then Jesus comes and doesn't break from the occupation of Rome. They're still, and then they become even more um, attacked than Judaism because Judaism was respected as an ancient belief. And then when Christianity started to be seen as separate from that, it's like, ah, oh, it's just some new religion. So at no point really, except for maybe briefly in the kingdom period, have have the scriptures ever been written from the point of view of those guys in charge pushing out to everybody else. In fact, the prophets are often when the, the uh, Hebrew kings are in charge and during their reign, attacking them about how terrible they are and how terrible they are for all these persecutions that they're doing. And then Christianity, or American Christianity, it goes far beyond American Christianity, but that's the brand I'm most familiar with, uh, Christendom, really. So now it goes, like, just forgets that entire narrative, and it's like, but now we're on top and now we can do it. It's like, oh, you, you put so much on the Bible, the entire narrative of the Bible is the complete opposite view. If it were to be written from there, it would be attacking, you know, that side. And so we just get this total flip-flop. And that's why Jesus' words don't really make any sense to us about the first is last, and this is last, and this is how you'll serve. Um, not like the Gentiles and stuff, and we just we just ignore it because we think he needs to be macho, and he's just whatever, and we have a thousand different ways to explain it away. Um, and so that is, I, I don't know if you're looking more for like like the practical things of what we do, but I think our just entire perception of it would be different from this really macho tough guy we have the correct morality and so we need to bully people into it uh from this meek we have the correct morality 
and we will maintain that correct morality at all costs. And people may see us and then go with us, but that is how we witness, is we never, we never go beyond Jesus because he wasn't a king and now we're kings. You know, we're not beyond our master. We stay with him, and that is how he showed his morality, and that's how we'll show ours. But we have, nobody would admit this, but I feel they feel they've, we've grown beyond Christ, who is just this kind of poor preacher who had some good ideas, and now, and now we got the sword, so now we can actually uh, fulfill his ideas in a way that he wished he could have. Um, and that has all sorts of implications there, but I think that is just our whole view of what our religion looks like. And it's not too hard to maybe imagine what would happen after that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me. Uh, the last I looked um, in the United States, Congress, the, the last Congress was like high 80% Christian, um, identify as Christian. And the military is, I don't know, like 60, 70%, something like that. Um, whatever the numbers are, it's, it's big, like Christianity and government and sword are, I mean, they just go hand in hand in our world. So, yeah. yeah. So with that, that reminds me of uh, um, another reason why Constantine, his transition was maybe not as hard as we might think, is the kings have always been about justice, right? That's their thing. And Christianity is all about justice. Now, they might be different justices, and they might look at it different ways, but they both have this, this view of justice, and so it's kind of easy to go. And so um, I think that we, a lot of people see their Christianity for that because they see words like justice and stuff, and then they just assume that that's what it means. So I, I tell people you know, who are military and talking really to be offended that I think that they're horrible, disgusting murderers who hate all life and stuff. I say we actually probably have a lot and talk about I bet you, you know, you you know, you want justice and you don't want these bad things to happen. I bet we could talk about a lot of the reasons and agree on most of them. The difference is just I think your way is an I tend to be a little bit nicer and just say it's ineffective and, and stuff. Uh, and also just incorrect <laughs> and you and you think minus. Uh, but I think because I think my idea of justice is a bit different, but there's enough there to where people can use that Christianity in order to support that view. I would say it's probably the opposite where we have that really strong view and then we bring Christianity up there, but it has a lot of those words that we can wrap, wrap it in there. And I have a feeling that's why so much of that is there. Way It's high numbers. Is it, it can be compatible if you pick a lot of those key words. Yeah. That's, that's a great point that, I mean, somebody in the military are ends are largely the same. It's the means that are different. And I would add, we, we add to that the end of uh, reconciling enemy. Yeah. The, the destruction of the enemy so that they're not attacking us typically comes down to what <laughs> people are looking at, which is not the same. Um, but I, I tend to, <laughs> but that, but you're correct. It is different. Like I said, there is a bit different, uh, just justice there, but I have a feeling that's why it's easy enough to, to co-opt into that. Although like um, you said, Augustine even said, Hey, I do want my enemy to be saved, but through my harsh means. So I guess, I mean, y you could even be in the military and desire that your actions would convert the enemy through, through force. Yeah, I mean, um, colonialism.
So luckily we've right. largely gone like, oh, but I've heard people justify it. Like, yeah, it was really bad. We shouldn't have done it. You're right. However, I mean, it might have been a net good. Sure, their ancestors didn't like it, but I'm sure they're glad that they're Christian now. Um, so you, you're supposed to sort of distance yourself from colonialism, but there's still this justification. And I, you know, I have a feeling, hopefully, yeah. in another 102 years, people will look back and like, huh, look at all this stuff. You know, and they'll distance themselves from these these different, uh, you know, justice things of going and being the police force and stuff. Um, though yeah. I have a feeling they'll still go. But, I mean, it was for certain, right. you know. So um, to kind of wrap this up, is there any question because of my lack of expertise that I just didn't think to ask that you're like, ah, I really wish you would have asked this or this would have provided some uh, helpful insight into all of this. Is there, is there anything that you're chomping at the bit to, to bring up? Not, um, not that I can think of. Um, no, um, I had, cause I had, I like to be way over prepared. <laughs> um, so, um, well, how about this? Just kind of as an ending note, cause this is similar to what we were talking about. Uh, some of the similarities, and it kind of goes to the what's the difference of how Christians responded. Some of the similarities to the um, of the the new Christian Constantinian, the way that he did things, and the old ones. So it's like, so what changed? So you were kind of asking the opposite. So how did Christians change? But it's different. Like if he really was Christian, surely he would rule differently than the others did. And uh, there were some things, like the giving of the alms, and he did build some things. There were some good things, too. Um, also, though, like I talked about the just, there's this idea that I am just. Um, before, you had to go through a huge process, several years of being a, um, um, of being a... Catechumen? Um, yeah, yeah, catechumen, there we go. Of being a catechumen and stuff, and Constantine didn't really bother with that he was largely self-taught for a long time he he didn't even really want to be taught or anything and he didn't get baptized till the very end um and so it's this kind of a new idea of like i'm the emperor and the emperors are obeyed right i don't need you to tell me to do these different things i don't need you to tell me how the world works i know how it works i'll listen to different things you know of course he has advisors and stuff but he's the one who sort of gets to understand it we looked at the things that uh, he Constantine himself that he attributed to the Donatists. Like I said, he did deal with them for a bit. Uh, he said uh, intransigence, um, obstinacy, deliberate divisiveness, which are the exact same things that the emperors before did to all the other groups, including the Christians. Obviously, the Donatists often would compare themselves to like, see, it's the exact same thing of what used to happen to us because we're still the Christian church and you're just the regular pagan empire. But it's different when you're right. <laughs> That's what I mean. Yeah, I talk, again, I talk a lot about the Anabaptists because I, I know a lot about the, the history of, of the Reformation there. And um, a lot sometimes some of the Anabaptists would like go to the reforms and like reformers and like, but you changed your religion. You're not Catholic anymore yet, yeah, but we're right, you know, and, and it's hard for us to understand, but that was a perfectly legitimate <laughs> understanding. Yeah. And, 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 um, the, the, just the idea that, uh, unity 
of religious unity and stuff could be found through force because they did that with paganism and stuff as well, right? You have to worship these gods. And now it's like, well, okay, same thing. It's just different gods in place and stuff. Um, and so those are all things that we see of that, that just, I think should raise an eyebrow. You expect Christianity to be a bit different. It's in a totally different scenario. Just like you look at any preacher, they don't want to change their church to be exactly like the new Testament church. Cause we're in a completely different scenario, of course. Um, but you got to look at how it changes and look at how much it didn't change. The emperor didn't change the empire, sorry, and how it was run. There were changes, but so much of it was just exactly the same with different words. And I think it should make a step back. And at least for those who, who are not real convinced, like just to maybe look at it and, and maybe wonder if maybe it's not quite as, like you said, it's just becomes a, well, now we're right sort of thing, as opposed to now we do it in a totally Christian way. It's just we're the Christians so we can do whatever we want. And if we think that all those things done to the Christians were travesties before, we have to say that it's not bad done to other people. So like you mentioned, are you willing to go to a mosque and destroy their stuff? Because I think a lot of people are like, yeah, of course, we want to do this. Go over to that mosque and set it on fire. Well, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, because you because know, you don't believe that, right? Maybe when it's overseas. Uh, but that's what they did. So if you feel uncomfortable with that, you should feel uncomfortable with those changes and you know, it's tough to go back on that, <laughs> but you know, it can take years, but go back and look and maybe that can be a starting point to be a little hesitant about what we're doing. Awesome. Well, I, I appreciate you uh, dedicating an hour and a half of your, your time here and all the time you, you put into it beforehand. So thanks for being willing to do this. Yeah. I've been wanting to be on since, <laughs> since before you started it. So I'm glad I was able to, to come on and talk with you. Awesome. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.